regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, I hold long-form in-depth conversation with our practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Bobby Pinero, the CEO and co-founder of eCourse, a next-generation spreadsheet. Previously, he was the head of finance and early employee number eight at Intercom. He has spent the last year working in finance, analytics, and data in general. So Bobby, it is my great pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Fabulous. To start out our conversation, uh, I was doing a little bit of homework on the profile and I found out that you were originally from DC and then you went to an old boys boarding school called St. Albans School. Would you mind sharing some of the formative experiences of your upbringing? Yeah, I think St. Albans was incredibly formative for me. I was insanely fortunate to go to a school like St. Albans. You know, to this day, it's probably by far the best academic experience and environment I was in. And I went to Stanford for college. Adventure, I probably learned a hundred times more at St. Albans than I did at Stanford, which just kind of speaks to what an incredible academic place it was. And at the same time, you know, St. Albans was a really kind of strange place to spend such formative years. I never fully fit in there. The type of kids that go there, they come from, you know, the very, very, very top families in the country, the wealthiest families, kids of like politicians and lobbyists. You know, we used to have car shows in the parking lot at school where parents would bring their cars in and show them off. And uh, every year, you know, there's a tradition at St. Albans where parents of students would open up their homes to the public and we, the, the students, would have to work them and show them off and give tours of the houses. It was pretty insane. And, you know, I didn't come from any of that. I commuted an hour each way to get to St. Albans every day, riding on the metro. You know, I came from a squarely middle-class family. My mom was an accountant and my dad worked for the government. I certainly wasn't wearing Burberry ties to school like a lot of the other students. And so for me, you know, I always felt like an outsider. And I guess I don't say this to like throw myself a pity party or downplay the fortune that I had to go to a school like that, but it did give me a huge chip on my shoulder. Being in that type of environment, you know, in a lot of ways made me want to prove myself. It gave me a hunger and a desire to achieve things and be successful. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's healthy or not, that's something I talk a lot about in therapy, but uh, it was certainly formative. I see. But that environment really allows you to step outside your comfort zone, coming from a more humble background and then be in that environment where everyone is very high like level of academic as well as intellectual standard, right? Yeah. And it, it was very much just a very stark contrast between like what you have and what others don't have. And so mm. it just kind of warps your perspective on the world. And I, I've been doing a lot of unpacking of that myself, but also just, it comes back to like, gave me that kind of big chip on my shoulder to go and like be really successful and achieve a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those formative years early in your childhood. 
for college, you move west all the way to Stanford in California to study management science engineering. How would you describe your overall academic experience at Stanford? I love the people at Stanford. My friends, the folks I met, incredible people. Some of the closest friends to this day come from Stanford, obviously. And so, in that way, it was great. And you know, whether we like it or not, having a stamp of Stanford on my resume is insanely valuable. For me, you know, and this might be a little controversial, but for me, Stanford was pretty meh academically. It's probably more on me than it is on Stanford themselves. Like, you know, I probably didn't do everything that I needed to do to kind of get the most out of that experience. But I think that also is just a reflection of where I was in my own life. Mm. You know, I just didn't want to be in school. My philosophy now is like, I never want to go back to school. I was tired of it. I was ready to get going and do things in the world. I was so over being in class, doing problem sets, taking tests that led to nothing. It just all felt so kind of impractical and pointless. And so, in that way, you know, that was part of my experience there. But to Stanford's credit, the most important thing it did for me, there was this one class. It was called Engineering Entrepreneurship, and it's a pretty well-known class. At the time when I was there, it was taught by a guy named Steve Blank. Where over the course of basically the 13 weeks that you're in the class, you have to start a company, and in the last week of the class, you get to pitch it to a bunch of VCs. Real VCs are there in the class, and you get to pitch it. And it was awesome. I loved it. I was like really in my element, and I had a lot of fun, and I did really well in the class.、Mm-hmm. And so I think in that way, that class kind of opened my eyes to how much I'd really love to start my own company someday. And after I left Stanford, that was the one class that was bouncing around in my head all the time, thinking about how much fun I'd had、uh, in it. And so in that way, it really sparked something for me. Just out of curiosity, what was that project you work on for that class? Ooh, yeah, it was so. It was me and three other people. We started a company called Mesh, not to be confused with Data Mesh, but which I still don't know what it is. So please don't ask me that. But it was a company called Mesh, and basically, you know, part of the idea with engineering entrepreneurship is you're supposed to go out and talk to a bunch of folks and try to find a problem to solve, and find people that are willing to pay you to solve that problem. And so, as part of my customer discovery. I was a student athlete at Stanford for a little while, and so I went and talked to one of the football recruiters at Stanford, and I was like, "Hey, what are some of the biggest pain points you have?" And he told me, basically, getting transcript and like GPA information from like high school recruits across the country was a total nightmare, nightmare for them and a nightmare for most other college football programs, but particularly for Stanford because you know maybe the bar there was a little bit different, and so. We decided to try to build a product that would go and automate that whole process and make it much easier to get transcript information. And、uh, it was fun. We did it for 13 weeks, but we, you know, obviously didn't pursue it any further than that. For sure. Thanks for sharing that very fun experience you got. It sounds like what you really learn from college here is the entrepreneurial muscle, right? The, the desire to do something from scratch and cultivate that ambition to solve certain problems in the world rather than pulling a control environment. After finishing your undergrad, in the first three years of your career, you worked as a finance analyst at IBM and then Inflection. What were some of the valuable lessons you have learned during this career phase? IBM was awesome. You know, look, my main lesson there was I never want to work for a four hundred thousand person company again. I felt so small, so insignificant, so powerless. And I think for me, that's like the draw towards startups and young companies is like I get to do so much more and you get to see the impact of your work. 
But IBM was really a great place to start my career, you know, learn how to be a professional. There's space in these types of big companies to learn how, I don't know, the basics, right? To like how to write an email, how to create a presentation, how to use Excel, which is like where I learned how to use Excel. And at IBM, you know, I met the person who ultimately introduced me to Intercom, which was one of the most meaningful steps in my career. And then we'll talk about this probably later, but the idea for Equals was really kind of seeded or sparked from some of the tools that I used at IBM. So mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, really kind of shaped my career onwards. And then inflection for me, you know, the next stop after that was my first step back into the startup world. It was maybe a 150 person or so company when I joined. I learned really the basics of how kind of web companies work there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned how to write SQL, which was incredibly important for me. I learned how to measure a SaaS business, what is retention, LTV, conversion rates, all that fun stuff. And so in a lot of ways, I wouldn't have succeeded in my role at Intercom without that kind of experience from inflection. So the way that I kind of approached my career and it started with these two roles has just been getting closer and closer to that engineering entrepreneurship class, like getting closer and closer to you know, smaller and smaller companies and starting my own thing. I see. You start out with big organizations, learn some of the more high-level professional adequate, and then you dip your toe into the startup over and then you can expand your shell a little bit and then move into how internet company works, right? And then sort of settle down into even smaller, smaller, smaller environment. Thanks for sharing those two contexts. So in 2013, you joined Intercom as one of the company's early employees right after its Series A financing. What was the rationale behind the decision? So in part, I wanted to keep getting into smaller and smaller companies closer to that point of the point of starting at the origination point. And so that was, you know, one big motivation for me. But Intercom specifically called to me because, look, I wasn't looking to leave the, the role I was in inflection. Intercom kind of just a friend of mine reached out, said they were looking for uh, somebody to run finance. And when I learned more about the company, a few things stood out to me. One is I wanted to be at a product first company. Inflection was great, but it was not a product first company. It was a marketing first company. And as a marketing first company, right, it was great at acquiring customers. We knew our LTV down to the cent. Our acquisition was a machine. But, you know, while I was there, the market started to get a little bit more competitive. CPC started to go up which meant the margins on acquiring customers became thinner. And so sometimes we had to turn channels off because they were no longer profitable. And so the only way to fight against that, right, is to increase LTVs, which means improving retention and improving the way people use the product. But we didn't know how to do that. It wasn't in the DNA of the company. It wasn't, you know, a product first company. And so I wanted to be somewhere where product was in the DNA of the founders. And so when I met Owen and Des, I immediately saw that. And then I think the thing that was probably the most influential, the thing that sold me the most was Twitter. (laughs) I remember just, you know, going on Twitter, searching for intercom and just the number of tweets. And this is, you know, 2013, still really early. The number of folks talking about how much they love intercom, how it was a game changer for them. That was exactly what I was looking for. And so from there, you know, decided to make the leap and, I remember folks, you know, my parents and other folks telling me, hey, Bobby, isn't it like a little crazy to join such an early stage company? What if it doesn't work out? You know, this is pretty risky. 
And for me, you know, that just never even crossed my mind. I saw it as zero risk this time I did. My rationale was just, hey, either this works and I get to not just take a step in my career, but take a leap in my career. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to learn a lot or it doesn't work. And I'm going to learn a lot too in that case. And, you know, I'm going to trust myself that, you know, on the other side of that, if it doesn't work, I'm going to have made all sorts of connections and, you know, I'll be able to find another opportunity coming out of that. So, you know, I encourage folks to make that leap and join something early because you just learn so, 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 so much. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for sharing the anecdote via that decision and combination of wanting we work in a place where products is first class citizen and the other one is just customer love right the testimonial from users of the product on social media so those things are the key factors that made it into your decision and understanding is you uh, employee number eight and then you like the first finance high right and i believe that you join right after they raised the era and right before they hit the one million dollars in ARR. i'm curious what is the company want to hire a finance person at this stage of the business yeah, Mamoon Hamid from, he was at Social Capital at the time. He was the one that led the Series A. And I think the story was that basically after they led the Series A, Mamoon went into a board meeting with Owen, and I'm sure neither of them will mind me sharing this, but they went into a board meeting and basically uh, there were no metrics in the board deck and it was, hey, let's talk product strategy. And, you know, Mamoon was like, no, we need metrics. We need to start looking at, you know, what is ARR? What is, how does our ARR come to be? We need you know, conversion rates, we need to look at retention, we need to look at all the kind of basic SaaS things. And so that was the call for, hey, we need a finance person or we need a, an analyst type. And then the guy that I worked with at IBM was at Social Capital at the time. And so he connected me to them and that, the rest is history. I see. So just there's a need for actually use data, like be more data-driven and implement metrics in, in to grow the business. Correct. So you spend more than seven years at Intercom and initially started out as the finance, but later on, you led the whole finance organization as a scale from less than 1 million ARR to 150 million plus. And while doing the research for this conversation, I came across this talk that you give at the Intercom Analytics Meetup in 2016 called Scaling Analytics at Intercom. And the talk discussed, you know, when to bring in analytics, whom to hire first, how to organize the analytics team and how to engage with other stakeholders. So yeah, can you uh, unpack some of the key ideas presenting that talk and basically it's how, you know, you led the analytics journey at Intercom. Yeah. So the main message of that talk, and, you know, you have to remember this was like, you know, six, seven years ago now. So it was maybe more insightful then than it is now, or it's maybe more of a well-understood thing now than it was back then. But the main message was, look, the biggest mistake I made at Intercom in terms of my analytics journey was not hiring a data engineer early enough. And today that might be like a data engineer plus an analytics engineer or somebody who can play a little bit of both of those roles. But my background before Intercom was primarily in finance, right? I wasn't like a data, data person. And so especially six, seven years ago, right? When there weren't kind of all of these modern data tools that there are today, you know, there wasn't as much conversation around, hey, how do you build out a data warehouse? How do you transform data? How do you consolidate it all? Like, what does the schema look like? How do you plug it into different tools? How do you make it operational within the company? And so for me, it was just, I totally kind of didn't know how to do that. And so we were too late in hiring a data engineer. It just made it a lot more painful. I wish we had done it uh, much sooner. And I had hacky ways to like hack around that myself with Python scripts and my own little databases that I spun up that I maintained data in for Intercom. But the main message there was 
uh, hire, build that infrastructure as soon as you possibly can. And I think it's a little bit more well understood today, but it's 100% holds true for any scaling startup. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context. There was another interesting part in that talk that I want to quickly touch upon, which is the way that you organize your team. And you said that you organize as a, as a centralized partnership in which analysts partner with uh, the functional you know, department in a company. Can you t- tell a little bit about like, why that sort of centralized partnership works for the context of a startup? Yeah. And, you know, I think it was a journey that we went on in many different stages at Intercom. You know, we centralized the team, we decentralized the team at some points, but especially early on in the very beginnings of Intercom, I'm a big proponent of combining finance and analytics teams. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is there's just so much overlap between what those two teams uh, need to do in the beginning of a kind of startup's journey, right? Like a lot of folks think about finance as, hey, they're the team that comes in and puts a budget in place. They build a plan. They tell you how much headcount you can have. They, okay, they do accounts payable and accounts receivable and accounting and all that fun stuff. But that's not really what strategic finance at an early stage company does. Most of those things you can outsource, especially the accounting. And so finance at an early stage company is really about unpacking the business, right? It's about understanding, okay, how does ARR come to be? What are all the levers? What happens from the time somebody first hears about your company, like the first visit to your website, all the way down to they're a power user of the product and they're, you know, doing 10 things, they're active every single day and they're doing 10 things in the product, right? Mm -hmm. What are all the steps that they take and how can we maximize those things? Finance needs to be involved in that conversation and they need to be helping to unpack that as does analytics. And so the more that those two teams overlap, the more powerful it is if they're together. Now, as you get to kind of bigger scales, there's different arguments where you start to kind of maybe unpack those things because you need more specialized teams and because maybe an analytics team needs to be decentralized and sit next to the teams that they support. But I hold, it was super valuable to Intercom to have those two teams together from the get-go. Yeah, thanks for sharing the context. You actually have written a blog post, say every analyst is a finance analyst. I think just sort of like illustrate that part you just mentioned, like basically at, at that early stage, you know, the finance person is, is basically doing data and measure metrics for the growth of the business, right? And that really led itself well to my next question. I came across this really insightful post on the Intercom blog that you've written and talking about some of the data points that startups should measure. So yeah, would you mind sharing, you know, some of the few key metrics that are fundamental to the health of a startup across different growth stage? Yeah, so... The point of that post was really that it's a little bit of a different take than I think a lot of folks uh, share, but there's not really a one-size-fits-all metric that kind of every startup should measure at any particular stage, right? There's one, there's just different types of uh, businesses, right? There's SaaS businesses, e-commerce, marketplace, social place, uh, social media, Web3, you know, all of them have their own set of metrics and, you know, Every single business, you talk to anybody in a business, right? And they're like, oh, my business is so complicated. Every business is unique, Mm -hmm. right? Unique in its strategies, unique in the opinion it has about the world, the stories that it tells. And so, you know, I actually think kind of like force-fitting metrics and benchmarks to companies can be a trap. Investors obviously love to do this because their whole job is to look from the outside in and compare companies and try to find the winners. And so they try to benchmark and put you, you know, where you are relative to others. But in a lot of ways, it's the role of 
a great finance person, a great analytics person. It's the role of the company to tell its unique story in as compelling a way as it possibly can using data to do that. So I try not to dictate which metrics folks should use. Now, what I always come back to is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, which is our role as like finance analytics data people is to always explain how the business works. And so for me, that comes from how do people get value from the product? And some folks don't like talking about revenue as much. They like other North Star metrics, but I like revenue. And you know, I like really unpacking what drives revenue because revenue is the thing that's it's the actual enumeration of like what is the value that people get from your product. Yeah. And so I view our roles as to unpack and dissect where that revenue and where that value comes from. So like I said before, it's, you know, tracing back, okay, from visit all the way until they become a power user, what are all the steps? What are all the ways we can instrument the product, measure our understanding of every single one of those steps? That's kind of how I think about it. Yeah. And talking about revenue, I think you recently written a post talking about how revenue is the best non-star metric for companies to measure. I'm curious to measure how people use the product. So throughout the last cycle of inter-commerce business, was there any few metrics that being emphasized more for the context of intercom as a B2B customer support, customer engagement product? Yeah. I mean, everything for us at intercom was about net retention and, you know, like net retention being like an indicator ultimately of like the lifetime value of a customer or of a cohort. Right. And like, that's the magic for any SaaS business, right. Is if you can understand, okay, how do we acquire customers? And then how do we continue to drive the lifetime value of those customers? And then you can make really insightful decisions about how you prioritize across your business just based on, you know, the lifetime value of different segments of your customers. So, you know, for us at Intercom, one of the most insightful and impactful analyses we did was to just start to drive an understanding of, okay, by segment in our business. So for the very tiny startups to the mid-sized startups to the enterprises, what was the net retention? What was the lifetime value of those customers? And how quickly were each one of those segments growing? And which one of those segments did we want to invest the most in? And so that's the magic of a SaaS business is if you can continue to drive that net retention, that lifetime value of the customer up, everything kind of comes back to that. Yeah, net retention across different segments, across different sides, the core of the customers, right? Correct. Thanks for sharing that journey. Now. Let's talk a little bit about the current journey that you're having. Well, so you spent about eight years intercom, and I think your original goal has always been getting to smaller, smaller environment and kind of eventually fulfilling that dream of engineering entrepreneurship from that class. So since March of 2021, you have been the co-founder and CEO of Equals, a next-generation spreadsheet with building connections to any data warehouse, modern versioning, and collaboration. Can you share the story behind the founding of the company? So... Equals is the tool that I wish I'd had as an analyst for the past decade, right? In my roles at IBM, in my role at Inflection, in my role at Intercom. And like I said earlier, the, the seed for the idea for Equals started, at least was planted in my time at IBM. It's not only where I learned how to use Excel, but more importantly, at IBM, we had this tool called SBase. And SBase is this, it's an Oracle product. And it's a plugin to Excel that automatically connects to a database that's structured as an OLAP cube. And it was magic. It was magic. You could pull data, any data from the database directly into Excel. 
It made my job so, 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 so easy. It also made it really easy to know and verify how others had built their analysis. But at IBM, I mean, I think we had probably a hundred engineers and admins building out and maintaining S-Base. Uh, it was kind of wild. And I'm sure they probably still have that team there making sure S-Base is up and running. And so when I left IBM and I went and joined Inflection and then Intercom, we obviously didn't have that. And you know, I learned how to write SQL. I also learned Python. And then I tried, I mean, every single BI tool on the planet, right? I've tried Mode, I've tried Tableau, I've tried Looker, Periscope, Superset, Metabase. And none of them really fit the way that I knew or wanted to work. And that's because I wanted to be in a spreadsheet, right? Like I, there's actually something like really, really powerful about the way that a spreadsheet lets you work with data. You know, my co-founder and I talk about it as just like magical sometimes. It's this canvas where you can touch and feel data, where you can move it around, where you can go compounding formulas without even knowing it. And so, you know, as I was kind of leaving Intercom, I was looking around at what everybody else was building in the market, right? And I just, I didn't want it. Folks kept trying to take me out of the spreadsheet. They're trying to take the spreadsheet away from me whether again, it was working a BI tool, working a dashboarding tool, working this notebook, working this low code, no code spreadsheet replacement, and honestly just tired of it. And so that's where the idea for equals came from was, can we build a modern spreadsheet for the way that modern analysis gets done? Because you know the equivalent today to those hundred S-based data admins and engineers are, you know, all of the analytics engineers and data engineers that exist today that are building out these SQL data warehouses with robust transformations and things like that. And so that's where the idea for equals came from. And then the story behind actually founding it is just very serendipitous. So I'll share that real quick. As I was wrapping up my time at Intercom, I was thinking about what to do next. And Obviously, there was a big part of me that wanted to start a company and keep getting kind of into smaller and smaller, uh, closer to that point of origination. And I'd been keeping a list for a while of different ideas that I'd had, and Equals was one of them. And I was actually in the process of talking to another company about joining them as a head of finance, Mm -hmm. kind of doing the same thing that I'd done at Intercom again at another early stage company. And as fate would have it, as the universe would kind of make it work. I got to the very final stage of that process. They did a back channel reference on me. They actually ended up calling my co-founder, my co-founder to be Ben, who I hadn't probably talked to. And, you know, we worked together at Intercom in the early days, but I hadn't talked to him in probably a year or two. When he got that back channel reference, he pinged me. He was like, hey, we should catch up. And we caught up. And it just so happened that he was working on like, he was not working. He was kind of experimenting with something new. It was in the spreadsheet type space. It was this thing called equals. It was like a little bit of a different concept where we ultimately landed, but then we just started talking and the whole idea for equals came out of us and it clicked and that was it. Off to the races. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the story and the whole journey with the spreadsheet and then how do you eventually land up in this position. A couple of things I want to unpack about what you just shared. So let's talk a little bit about the story, the company first, and then we talk about the product. So Ben McRadman, your co-founder, you said he used to be the senior director of growth intercom, right? And then I believe based on my research, he was CEO co-founder of another company right before Equals, right? What about him that you want to collaborate with as a co-founder? Because this is probably the most important decision to make for any startup. 
Ben is probably one of the most in the top 1% of 1% in terms of brilliant product people out there on the planet. He's just, I knew when we reconnected and we started working through an idea, he just has a product mind. Very few folks that I've met in terms of kind of betting on somebody, uh, building a company with somebody, he's probably the best partner that I could have imagined for doing that. And then it was only made easier, that decision, by the fact that we'd worked together. He was Intercom's first employee. You know, he was there when I joined. We worked very, very closely together. We helped take Intercom from, you know, while he was there, one to 50 million in ARR in, you know, less than three years. And we were doing it, you know, side by side. I was doing a lot of the analysis. He was building out like different flows in the funnel and different product things. And we'd had that experience working together and we knew we could work really well together. And then, you know, Ben, he left Intercom and then he went and started his own company. And that experience has just been also insanely valuable for the equals journey. Just being able to learn from the things that they did well in that experience and also learn from the mistakes that they made. Ben and I talk about that all the time. And he's been a just an incredible partner to have as we kind of build out equals, particularly for me as the first time. Yeah. I see. Yeah. So he's brilliant product, my second time father, and then that sort of share experience working at the com together. It's like God convinced you to collaborate with him. Right. And so what's the meaning behind the name equals? Equals like the first button that you press in a spreadsheet. Gotcha. <laughs> You mentioned a little bit about like spreadsheet in your answer, like you try out so many different, you know, product during your time at Intercom, but you said something about spreadsheet is still pulling you back on that environment, right? Can you explain a bit more, like, especially for non-spreadsheet users, why spreadsheet is so addictive as an interface? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's a few different pulls towards the spreadsheet. One is that it's fully customizable. Again, the way I describe it is the canvas, right? It is this like platform that you can do almost anything on. And in fact, you know, you can go down a rabbit hole of finding all sorts of wild things that people do with spreadsheets beyond your imagination. And so the big appeal for a spreadsheet, as opposed to like a lot of these kind of other tools for me is I know that if I'm at Intercom and I'm running the finance team and I've got, you know, I'm running a financing process or I've got a board meeting you know, in a week from now, and my CEO pings me two days before the board meeting. And they're like, Hey, Bobby, we need to, yeah, this model's okay. But we actually, you know, we need to make this like really quick change to what happens if we change the retention on this product, or what happens if we insert this product here, or, oh, let's try this other thing. Guess what? I know I can do that in a spreadsheet. I don't know that I can do that in any other tool really quickly. And so the spreadsheet itself is infinitely flexible to, to match the kind of needs of my business. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, I'm always drawn back to the spreadsheet because I know I know that I can solve you know, any modeling problem or question that I need to in it. And then you just have the inertia of just, you know, why is it that we always end up back in a spreadsheet? It's because people know how to use it. It's because people have been trained on it. It's because the vast majority of executives, folks that are not even, wouldn't even call themselves analysts are comfortable in this environment. And so there's just an inertia around spreadsheets that's just not going anywhere. Yeah, so that combination of the customizability control of the user plus the ubiquitous adoption of spreadsheet like throughout the history of technology has just been the thing that kept it survive for a long time and probably still in the future, right? 
to talk a bit more about some of the key capabilities that are back into the equals product. I took a look at the website a little bit and some of the things that been written on the website is that equal is completely self-serve, has zero learning curve and keeps data reproducible. Well, first of all, the team market equals as the next generation spreadsheet. Can you share a bit about sort of the history, the evolution of spreadsheet throughout the past decades and then also explaining how equal works at a high level? Well, the evolution of the spreadsheet over the last decade, you know, it's really just been the spreadsheet as we kind of like know and love it, right? The last decade, it's Excel and Google Sheets. That's it. That's Those are the spreadsheets. There's been a lot of unbundling of the spreadsheet, building of different versions or different verticalizations, use cases of the spreadsheet. So there's like the air tables of the world, which is like the spreadsheet as like a database or the spreadsheet as a mini application. There's... Uh, you know, smart sheets, right? The spreadsheet is like a project management tool is like a workflow type tool. There's the spreadsheet kind of meets the doc, which is like your notions, your codas, those types of tools. But your spreadsheet for doing analysis, it hasn't changed, right? It's Google Sheets and it's Excel. And so yet the kind of foundations of how companies do analysis and the best practices we know about how to collaborate and work together and how to do work together have all changed over that last decade. And so equals is our attempt at building that third generation spreadsheet, that next spreadsheet that incorporates all those things that we've learned over the last decade. And so equals is unbelievably simple to describe. It's almost impossibly obvious of a product, which is one of the beautiful things about it. All we are is a spreadsheet that works just like Excel, functions, formulas, features, down to the keyboard shortcuts. And we're natively connected to any data warehouse. So you can write SQL right there alongside your spreadsheet. You can also access the SQL database without writing SQL through our visual editor. And then we seamlessly integrate into various other places where you might want to get data. So things like Salesforce and HubSpot and QuickBooks and NetSuite. And then every time you pull data, it's versioned, it's snapshotted. You can restore it with the click of a button. And then we're fully collaborative and web-based. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I'll be sure to include some of the product demo that the team's been releasing to illustrate how the product works. And I'm sure like the idea, the strategy behind the product development is probably also to kind of reflect the current state of how data analytics professional has been accustomed to, right? So just kind of looking at the broader ecosystem, how do you see the concept of a next generation spreadsheet fit into the quickly evolving modern data stack? It's a fundamental missing piece. We can just talk about the consumption layer of the data stack because, right, the data stack goes pretty deep and there's so much going on within it. But even on the consumption on the kind of front end of the data stack, right, there's an explosion of new tools. We've talked about this a little bit already, but right on, on one end of the spectrum, there are a ton of new BI and kind of dashboarding tools, right? They all basically do the same thing, pull data, chart it, throw it up on a dashboard. It's useful, but also insanely limited in kind of what you can do. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, right? The notebooks, right? Where you write SQL and Python and R, you know, Jupyter notebooks, your hexes of the world, also awesome but for a very, very, very small fraction of the population, right? There's still a tiny number of folks that can use those tools and use them effectively. The vast, vast, vast majority of analysis still happens in spreadsheets. You know, my, and I don't even mean this flippantly, but like one of my biggest reflections from my time at Intercom is that every meaningful business decision that we made was out of a spreadsheet, every single one of them. And so 
Think about all the weird workflows that exist in most companies, right? Where you have finance folks, rev op folks, accountants, growth marketers, salespeople, et cetera, functional analysts, all sorts of people pinging a data team to update a query for them, to write them a query, logging into Tableau to download a CSV to get the latest data into their spreadsheet, only to then find out that that, that, that Tableau dashboard changed a week later, and now they're kind of out of luck and they can't get that report that they once were able to get. And then you just have innumerable spreadsheets flying around a company with rogue data in it. You know, you'll get a spreadsheet, it'll have some copied and pasted data in, and then somebody's asking you, where'd you pull the data? How'd they pull it? Is it right? How do you reproduce it? And so there's all these broken workflows around the fact that the biggest tool, the most important tool, the spreadsheet for doing analysis is completely disconnected from the data stack. And so in equals, you know, in its grandest vision, right, we're trying to meet folks in that tool, in a spreadsheet, in the way that they like working in this kind of like incredible, powerful paradigm of a spreadsheet. You know, how does equals fit into that modern data stack? It's the tool that gives the vast, vast, vast majority of people finally access to the data stack. Access, I see. Yeah, I really like that distinction that you made about like how you can broke down this consumption layer into the BI level, the notebooks people, and then there's the spreadsheet, which is sort of the big untapped potential for way data that can be, you know, accessed always to the rest of the modern enterprise, right? And I assume that considering the fact that spreadsheet is the last layer, how do you think about partnering with some of the tooling at the upstream level of the data stack? I do know that it was full data from data warehouse, database, or Azure, things like Snowflake or BigQuery, probably like the direct integration. Was there any other layers of the data stack that you think that might be relevant for equals to partner with? Yeah. I mean, certainly at the data warehouse level, we're partnering and kind of building integrations there. The ones that I'm keeping my eyes out are, you should be able to pull in metadata from like DBT and things like that to know whether or not what you're pulling is correct and when it was last updated and who created it and, you know, things like that. You know, we're exploring a lot of really exciting partnerships and I don't want to divulge too much there, but certainly the next generation spreadsheet equals will be kind of connected to all of these tools. Yeah, definitely exciting to hear that. Let's take up your product hat and put on your co-founder hat. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early stage startup father. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Equal's mission? So I think you kind of answered the question a little bit to some degree in the question itself. For us, and look, hiring is insanely hard as a startup. And that's just a given, right? When you're like a young company and you're trying to convince the world of who you are and what you believe in, it's just hard to, you're just going to swing and you're going to miss. And, you know, so there's no secret, like there's no silver bullet here to like, to fix it or make it easy. The thing that Ben and I look for the most when we're talking to folks is for our stage and the folks that we know are going to be really successful at equals are when there's just a genuine excitement, curiosity, and passion for what we're building you know, we don't want to, we've been in a position where we've, you know, we're going after somebody who has, you know, a random engineer, say, for example, who has, who's choosing between us and five different startups, and they're choosing based on compensation, as well as maybe a few other things. And 
you know, again, that's not to say we don't put together, like really do believe in putting together strong offers and strong comp packages in front of people. But what we do look for is that folks are really fired up and excited about what we're building, that they understand our story, that they, it resonates with them, that they choose to work on this almost kind of above anything else. And it's particularly important for us because what we're building is really difficult, right? Like building a spreadsheet in the browser is not an easy thing. It's probably the, you know, when we were starting equals is probably the number one piece of advice and feedback we got was you guys are crazy trying to build a spreadsheet. Do you know how many engineers Google Sheets had doing this? It's impossible. You'll never get it done. So for us, the types of folks that we need to hire are people that really care deeply and understand our problem and want to work on it, want to work on that above all else. And then a very practical lesson I've learned just from hiring at this stage is, look, and I don't want to make any like just cold, hard, blank statements here, but this will be a little bit of that. I just have stopped talking to folks at big companies like Facebooks and Google, the Googles, the Ubers, et cetera, of the world. There are great people there, no doubt. Many of them will say they want to join a startup, but I found that a startup for them usually means like a 400 person company that's like a series DC or series D company, not a you know 10 person kind of scrappy startup. And so I've wasted a lot of cycles myself trying to get someone from those big companies to join us at five people and, uh, you know, to then only have them go and accept an opportunity at a series D 400 person startup, if you want to call them that. Yeah. I'm sure like people who work in like big tech company, they take a lot more just goodwill outside to get out of that comfort zone, right? To go to like, that stack and it probably take them time to like gradually go down like smaller 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 to this stage what you said yeah kind of like my journey right like you know i joined a, i was at a really really big company it's a good point i hadn't thought about it that way like really really big company to smaller to smaller to then to this yeah. point so people maybe need to go more gradually into that and so you mentioned in your answer is people who are like genuinely excited about this challenge these new categories that equal is pushing on like, how do you like calibrate that excitement in the interview? Yeah, I think you can tell pretty quickly, right? Like you can tell in the ways that they talk about you relative to other folks. So one thing that we do for engineers, for example, is we have a, you know, we'll do a screener, right? It's like a three, four hour exercise and you can tell, and you know, it has to do, our screener has something to do with the spreadsheet, right? And you can tell how people respond to that challenge. Our screener is not easy. And so you can see, do folks like, are they excited about that? Do they go above and beyond? Do they get to a certain point? Maybe they still have a little bit of time. Do they do something extra? You can kind of pick up on that. I don't want to discourage people from running the processes that are best for them. And at the same time, like, you know, when somebody shows up and says, okay, well, I'm going to run my process and I'm going to try to get as many offers at the end of this as possible, then I'm going to make my decision. Totally fine do that, that works for you, but that's probably not going to be a great fit for us because you're probably not as excited about what we're doing. There might be other motivations for you. Again, it's okay, but not something that we are necessarily going to be super fired up about. I see. And then the last curiosity that I have about hiring is uh, given the stage of the company, you probably start having a thing about like team culture, you know, moving on into the next growth stage. Has you know, the idea of culture fit crossed your mind and Ben's mind when, you know, trying to find the right people early finding team member of course yeah 
And we could certainly, and what we do need to probably do a little bit more work to actually just like codify and kind of write down, you know, some of our philosophies. But Ben and I talked a lot about this and we talk a lot about it still when we started the company. You know, the things that are most kind of important to us are the opportunity in front of equals is probably about as big of a business opportunity as exists on the planet. It just is, you know. We're rebuilding and, you know, building the next generation of one of the most fundamental building blocks of every single company on the planet. And so what we're going after is a huge, huge, huge opportunity. And we want folks that are really excited and really motivated by that and take that opportunity really seriously. And so we ask folks to enjoy their work and work hard and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, we're really going for it. So we look for folks that kind of have that same mentality and that same mindset. For oh, sure. Thanks for sharing that. So we talked a little bit about employees. Let's just talk a little bit about customers. Very, very important finding startup. Finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. What are some of the challenges that your team have to overcome to find some of the early design partners and our customers? So, you know, even though the idea came from a place of, hey, I know this problem, I've lived this problem, I am the person that I am hopefully selling this product to, before I started Equals and you know, before Ben and I wrote a single line of code, I was out talking to hundreds of folks just like me, trying to understand, okay, do they share the same problem as me? Do they share the same view of the world as I do? And so a big part of this, it's just hustle. It's just getting out into the world and talking to people. And some people are going to say no. Some people are going to have different views of the world than you do. And it's just putting your nose down and doing the hard work. And from those conversations, right, just going out, talking to people, meeting them, getting on phone calls, getting on video chats, asking them questions, understanding what were their pain points, kind of some of those customer discovery types of concepts that I learned in engineering entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. From there, right, then you start to see who is excited, who gets it, who are the folks that are like, oh, yeah, if you built that, that would be a total game changer for me. And then you pull those folks into design conversations and you build a little something, you see how it goes for them. And then you kind of, but you build from there. At least that, that was my experience. I see. And on that point, talking with a lot of financial analysts at a various company and stages, did you see any specific other industry or company size that seems to more opening up to adopt like a next gen spreadsheet like equals? Yeah. I mean, I learned a lot from those conversations and also just from the last, you know, I still every day talk to customers, talk to users, talk to prospects. And that's hugely important to me. And, you know, we're finding that folks, not only finance folks, obviously that's like where we started, but finance folks, rev ops people, accounting, growth marketers, digital marketers. And then we have users and customers for equals that are in, you know, sectors that are like, They're doing consultancy work for like weather patterns and uh, mechanical engineering shops. And I mean, the use cases are really countless, which is really exciting Mm -hmm. uh, when you start to pair a data warehouse and a spreadsheet together. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context. And definitely excited to to see more some of those public display of those plans as you know, equal progression in the journey. For the remaining part of the conversation, I want to touch on some of your thought leadership perspective. And one of the reasons I'm really excited for this conversation is that, you know, you have written a fair amount of articles sharing your lesson throughout your career journey working in finance and analytics on the Equals blog website. So you have written a fair amount about hiring financial analysts from 
the only question that matters when interviewing analysts to when to make the first finance high. So can you recap some of the few key lessons from your experience hiring Intercom, going from like basically from scratch to like very big team? Yeah. So one of the biggest mistakes I made in hiring my team, hiring at Intercom, more people does not mean more output. More people actually, in some cases, can mean more work, especially when they're folks that are more junior than you. And so the most uncomfortable but fruitful thing that I did for myself at Intercom was to go and hire folks that were had many more years of experience than I did. And I know that sounds super obvious and really simple, but it's really uncomfortable when you're having to do it. And you're like, you know, maybe you're a little bit more like me, you were early in your career, you, you're scaling fast, you're trying to figure things out. It's really uncomfortable, at least it was for me to go and say, okay, I need to hire somebody who has five more years experience than I do in FP&A, in accounting, in analytics, because all of a sudden that like, that challenges like your own authority, right? Like it challenges like who you are and your value to the company. And so, you know, it's easier to say, okay, I'm going to hire folks for whom I can teach them what to do in their job because I know their job and I know what it is that they should be doing. But it's way harder to hire somebody and say, okay, you know more than I do about this field, go do it. And okay, what am I going to do? And so the biggest lesson for me in that is that's the only way to scale is to actually do that. And then you have to know and have trust and have confidence in yourself that there's a lot of other ways that you can add value, right? Like you want to delegate all the things that you're doing today. Your job to those people that have more experience than you is to give them context on the business, connect them in the organization, show them from the experience that you have within that company, how they can be successful and get out of their way, unlock them and partner with them to build an organization that is really powerful. And so really highly impactful. So that was kind of big lesson one was, you know, get uncomfortable in that way, because that'll really be the, the biggest leverage thing for you. And then maybe the other thing I'll offer up here is, you know, and this is for finance folks in particular, but, you know, I think maybe data folks have a little bit of this bias too. <laughs> we have a bias to be frugal, especially finance people to want to spend less money, to want to have less head count. So, so, so many, I was like this. So many other finance folks are like this and their teams suffer as a result. I died on the Hill at Intercom of I'm going to show the rest of the company how lean and how efficiently I can run my organization. I'm going to save the company so much money. And guess what? Nobody cared. Uh, nobody except for finance cared. And what actually happened was that we fell behind as a team. We were swamped. The team was burned out. And it wasn't until we made a really concerted effort to like go again beyond what I was comfortable with in terms of like headcount and spend to catch up on hiring was that the team was able to kind of catch some air. Yeah. So try to avoid being a superhero and run the leanest team in the company mentality. Yeah, so interviewing experienced folks, people who have more experience than you and sort of giving them context to integrate to the organization. And then the same point is about like how to restrict yourself to like the full gravity mindset. Also like stick together with the long-term growth of the business, right? You wrote a blog post pretty cool on that second part called The Less Lonely Finance Leader. And then there was a lie that I really liked. I just want to 
voice it up here. You said that the best finance folks know how to drive Bavi not to a specific budget or headcount plan, but rather to a longer term vision. This idea of like think about the bigger context of company and then be flexible with the numbers to align that with the business vision. Yeah. So besides the talk about hiring, I've also written a lot about evolving responsibility of modern finance professional from data slip to make as a scaling finance leader to how finance can help drive product market fit. What advice could you give to a smart driven finance operator looking to get more influence within a startup environment? I have one kind of tactic or one strategy that really helped me in my career. I've written about it and it was one of the things I always tell a lot of the folks on my team. I call it the overheard list. And the idea is really simple. Typically when you're starting off in your career or you're starting in a new company, you don't necessarily have like the confidence or the ideas or the context to like come up with things that you might want to do that things you might want to investigate analyses you might want to do ways in which you can be impactful to the business and so what i would do was and you know i've heard other folks do something similar what i would do is i just kept a notebook and i called it my overheard list and it's just a list of everything that i would overhear people talking about it could be things that Somebody would say in a meeting, somebody would say over lunch, at happy hour, in a water cooler conversation, you know, and I look for in particular areas where somebody said something that was not founded or not backed by data, where there was a conflict where two people disagreed and it wasn't resolved, or where somebody said it was like an opinion that somebody had, or like some sort of like guess that somebody had about the business. And so I'd write them down and If you do that long enough, you do that for even like a few weeks, right? You'll start to see some patterns emerge and you might start to tally some off where some ideas or some concepts are like brought up more frequently than others. And that's your list to go and start to investigate. And so from there, my kind of approach there was once you have that overheard list, then your mentality is, okay, let's like pick one. Let's go investigate one. And My kind of philosophy there is when you go and do an analysis or when you go do a body of work, you should act as if you're the CEO that's going to make the decision. You're the person that's on the hook for making the ultimate decision. You're not a contributor. You're not giving up one piece of the analysis and you're going to say, you know, here's a portion of what I think we should do, or here's my contribution. No, you should approach the analysis as, okay, I'm the CEO. I'm going to make the decision. And it just changes your mentality to the whole thing, right? You all of a sudden have to consider certain different factors. You have to consider how other teams are going to respond. You have to do other parts of the analysis to kind of complete it because you want to make the best decision possible. And so you combine those two things, all of a sudden you've got some ideas for what you should be exploring in the business and you start to build these really powerful analysis and all of this starts to compound Maybe you've got that overheard list and maybe somebody's talking about sales in, you know, Canada are up by 5% because of X, Y, Z reason. You go investigate it. You put a whole little thing. You go talk to the person who said that. You're like, hey, look, actually, here's why sales are up in Canada. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, cool. Thanks for doing that. They run with that. They help you run with that. They maybe insert you into a meeting that you wouldn't have been inserted into. And then all of a sudden, now you're getting more context and your overheard list starts to grow and you maybe do another one of those. And then all of a sudden people are like, oh, whoa, cool. This person's onto something. They're doing this really great work. And then that's when they're like, okay, let's give that person resources so that they can do more of that. And the whole thing starts to kind of compound from there. So that was my strategy. And that was kind of my mentality as somebody wanting to have impact. 
Thanks for sharing that strategy. In fact, you have written about this in your blog post called The Curious Analyst. And you talk about like how do you actually do that? I think that the biggest challenge here that is actually being consistent. Like you actually have to be consistently pay attention to meetings and actually listen to conversation, which is cultivating that practice is like the hardest thing, right? And then also choosing the right one to work on that can bring the biggest impact and think of yourself, take ownership of that project and in a broader context. Those are all the things that are going to make the most impact on this role. That's true. You have to be consistent about it. But also I would say you'd be surprised that you do that one or two times where you bring an analysis to somebody that they didn't ask for. Mm-hmm. And that you do it one or two times and it's really meaningful because a lot of folks don't do it. A lot of folks don't do it. It's rare that it happens. And so you do it and it's, it really doesn't take that, that, that much. So I just encourage folks to do it, to try it. Yeah. Perfect. So finally, you also share a fair bit about leveling up as an analyst from learning SQL yourself to building a curiosity practice. How have this skill been benefiting your current journey as a startup founder? Oh, it's everything to me. I mean, it's basically been the foundation upon which I've built. Yeah, the idea for Equals came from like all these things that I've learned in my kind of journey, all the experiences that I've had. And so maybe my higher level takeaway here is just continue to kind of trust the process that you're on and follow the things that do excite you and get you interested. And, you know, you may have some concept of like where you want to be by the end of that, but it all isn't necessarily linear, right? Like if I knew that I wanted to start a company one day, I might not have like first started my career at IBM, right? Like maybe I would have just gone and tried to start a company, but trust the kind of path that you're on and follow your curiosity and follow the things that get you excited and um, know that it'll lead you to the right place. Yeah. Trust the process and follow your curiosity. I mean, it took you like more than a decade from that engineering entrepreneurship class down to this stage. I'm curious, like, how has your mindset changed working at first phase of your career? Like, how does it evolve, I suppose? Yeah, it's a good question. I'll answer it maybe in a slightly tangential way, which is I think I am way more effective as a founder now and as uh, in, in starting my own company now as somebody who's been working for 10 years and who has been through all the experiences that I've been through. You just, you learn how to prioritize, you learn how to work, you learn how to recruit, you learn how to interview, how to manage, how to, all those things I needed to learn before jumping into starting a company. And so again, for some people, it's a different path, but for me, those were kind of like critical lessons and critical steps along the journey for me. And so for me, in terms of mindset, it's more of just how do I keep building on the skills that I've had? How do I keep learning? How do I keep growing? How do I continue to kind of push myself to get better? I've been doing that all my career and I you know, will continue to do that. And I trust that. Thanks for sharing that high-level takeaway. So Bobby, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions. And then you can provide quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data and analytics community whose work you admire. So one, I give a shout out here to Karen Church. She's at Intercom. She runs the research analytics and data science team there. She's fantastic. She's just excellent. She has a really cool program that she started called Her Plus Data. And she's just one of the folks that's super, super passionate about data. She knows her stuff. She's excellent. She's a wonderful human being too. So that's one, Karen Church. Second is a guy named Noah Brugman, who I worked with 
at Inflection actually is where we got to know each other. And now he runs a, a data consultancy called Data CRT. He's excellent. I tried to hire him at Intercom. He's probably one of the smartest, most analytical people I know. If you're looking for, I don't know if I'm, I'm supposed to plug or not here, but if you are looking for a data consultant, he's one of the best in the business. And then the third, I'd say Peter Fishman at Mozart Data. You should just check out what he's building. It's super cool, super interesting. We talk about kind of the other layer of the data stack. Mozart, if I'd had that when I was early on at Intercom, it would have saved me a lot of headaches. So big fan of his and what he's building. Yep. You should include those profile in the show notes. Number two, what is one book that you will recommend for people who want to develop a more curious mindset? So I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction. I don't have a book per se, but one of the things that's been most powerful for me developing my own curiosity practice is therapy. It's a game changer. It forces you to ask some of the most fundamental questions about yourself, which is probably the best way to generate curiosity, where you came from, why you behave the way you behave. Once you start to ask these questions, it's hard not to ask them. So that would be my answer there. I hope it's not too existential. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's just definitely fair. Valid, valid. Do you have any recommendation for therapy for people who like never tried before? Do you recommend online or in person? Or what kind of resources that you think would be most suited for, for beginners? Yeah, I really like in person. That works. I mean, look, I've done virtual as well and it's it can be okay, but there's something about being in person where you just, you pick up on cues and they pick up on cues and it's just intimate and vulnerable and that's a good practice to have and then maybe two other things i'd say on therapy one is you're going to try a bunch of different things and you got to figure out what works for you and you're probably gonna have to try five six seven eight different things you might have to talk to a bunch of different people don't get discouraged if you talk to one or two people and it, it doesn't click and it doesn't feel right it's just not going to it's going to take some time to get the right person and then what i like is practice called somatic therapy uh, there's different types of therapy but it's very like mind body connection so you're really just trying to tap into what are the physical sensations that you're feeling in your body how do those sensations kind of manifest as thoughts or things that are happening emotions that are happening for you yeah that's my two cents yeah thanks for sharing that somatic therapy and finally imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage financial analysts on twitter What would you tweet about? Yeah, I'm not as good on the Twitter scene as most, but I'm trying. I think what I would say to, to most finance folks is you're not alone. I find the finance role in particular to be a very lonely one, especially in an early stage company, right? You're having to put all the metrics in place. You're having to measure everyone, hold people accountable. You're putting budgets in place. You're reining in spend. You have to be You go to offsites and the offsites, everybody's coming up with ideas for like the five teams that they want to hire. And you're like, ah, I don't know if we could hire all those people. And so in some ways it's kind of you against the company and you know, that's not how you should approach it, but sometimes it feels that way. And so just a call to folks that you're not alone. And, you know, I'm always here to uh, also, if folks want to reach out, I love talking early stage finance, early stage analytics. So please message me and, you know, happy to jam on that because I, I really do enjoy it. Yeah. Thanks, Bobby. I really enjoy our conversation today, learning about your background, growing up in DC, going to school at Stanford, some of the formative experience early in your career working at IBM and Infection, your whole journey scaling out the financial and analytics function at Intercom, and then your current journey with equals building the next generation spreadsheet, very tactical 
ideas and lessons around product strategy, partnership, hiring, finding customers, you know, just generally, you know, the thought leadership regarding hiring financial analysts and the evolving responsibility of a modern finance professional. We should include everything that we talk about today into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look, check out e-course and Richard learn more some of your perspective on this topic. And I think, you know, this conversation definitely is going to be valuable for some of the early stage financial analysts to become less lonely. So Bobby, I really enjoyed coming to today and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me on. Excited. This was funny. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.